Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference Podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Neil Johnston. He is an IRCHSS doctoral scholar based in the UCD Humanities Institute, working on the Restoration Land Settlement in Ireland. He has contributed a chapter to the forthcoming collection, The 1641 Depositions and the Irish Rebellion. His paper is entitled The Restoration Land Settlement in Microcosm, The Southerls of Kinsale and the Court of Claims. Under the terms of the Act of Settlement of 1662, a tribunal was established to adjudicate on whether those claiming lands in Ireland after the restoration of Charles II had been active in the wars of the 1640s. The question of the rebellion hung over the whole settlement, casting a long shadow over those trying to regain as well as those attempting to retain lands. The efforts of those older Protestant settler families and their new English Protestant cohorts to resist any encroachment into these gains were paramount. Indeed, it was the very reason for the calling of a parliament in Ireland in 1661. Legalising ownership as of the 7th of May 1659, which was the date of the return uh, of the rump of the long parliament, um, became a priority uh, for the wider Protestant interest in Ireland in order to ensure that the king would not uh, reverse the land settlement. Ultimately, the settlement uh, proved beyond the ability of any one person or group to solve, ending prematurely and in failure. The first efforts at reorganising and incorporating the numerous interests came in November 1660. Charles II's gracious declaration aimed at incorporating into the political fold those Irish Catholics who had supported him during his years of exile while resolving the doubts over the ownership of those who arrived in Ireland after 1649. The Gracious Declaration proved impossible to enforce for a number of reasons. Firstly, it was not an act of Parliament and thus did not have statutory power uh, to realign land ownership. Secondly, the subsequent instructions uh, that appended the Gracious Declaration and that were issued to the Irish government in January 1661 were to cause more problems than they solved. Under these, 36 commissioners, most of whom uh, were members of the Irish Privy Council, uh, were to adjudicate on the hundreds of claims of innocence then arriving in Dublin. This proved impossible, as more often than not, the claims went against the interests of those uh, very people making the decisions. For this reason, the 1661 court was quickly abolished and it was deemed necessary to establish a more independent version in 1662. The partisan Irish House of Commons agreed to this, but believed that under the terms of the Act of Settlement of 1662, it had created a watertight situation where Catholic restorations would be restricted to a minimum. But this was to prove not so. (coughs) The passage of the Act of Settlement at the end of June 1662 marked a watershed in restoration politics, for soon after, James Butler, the Duke of Ormond, arrived as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, uh, relegating the Lord's Justice Roger Boyle, the Earl of Orrery, uh, to Lord President of Munster, and Sir Maurice Eustace uh, to the position of Lord Chancellor. Ormond's arrival signalled the realignment of the political landscape, as the Protestant interests lost some of the wranglehold it had on the political establishment. This was reaffirmed with the subsequent arrival of the Commissioners of the Court of Claims. They were a disparate group, but all were chosen for the strong royal, royalist principles. Some distance from such personal gain was a stipulation for this position, as the King did not want a repeat of the previous commission where vested interests were rewarded at the expense of entitlement. Their arrival signals something more. In normal practice, ownership was uh, signified by letters patent, 
which were issued ex gratia by the king with a commensurate fiat issued by the Lord Chancellor. However, in this case, the commissioners, commissioners acted directly on behalf of the crown and were ex debito justitiae. Thus, restoration or confirmation of ownership was founded only on the certificate of the commissioners without any order or even interference from the king, or that was the theory. Consequently, the normal pathway for preferment was closed off uh, for the old and new Protestant interests. The logical move was then for them to try to influence the commissioners, but as this failed to elicit a positive response, the commons in Ireland criticised the commissioners' decisions. When their early approaches were rebuffed, they instead moved to impose a more limited terms of reference on the Court of Claims. Their further failure to influence the commissioners over the course of the autumn of 1662 reflected an increase of tensions between the Duke of Ormond and the House of Commons in Ireland. The new Protestant interest, made up of those soldiers and land speculators who came to Ireland after 1650, began to resist the early decisions of the commissioners as it became apparent that some Irish Catholics were to regain lands at the expense of Protestants. Each move made by the commissioners witnessed a response from the new English, and by Christmas time, Ormond realised that tensions could spill over into violence, something, gov- something the government was not in a position to resist. When the Court of Claims began its public hearings in January 1663, an immediate outcry was heard from the New English, as initial degrees in favour of the Protestant interests were overshadowed by uh, several for Irish Catholics. The commissioners were guided by the terms of the Act of Settlement, but also by their own uh, document which was called Rules, Orders and Directions, which tasked them with the ruling on matters of guilt in the 1640s. Now, often they could see that the plaintiffs were not innocent, but the terms of reference under which the commissioners uh, operated gave little visible remedy to either side. And this tells us something uh, of the manner in which the claims were made. Often lodged on behalf of a spouse, a child or a grandchild of the 1641 owner, the decision of not innocent, or the term that they used, nocent, uh, did not necessarily apply. But neither did innocent. One such case was that of a man called James Allen. He'd been heavily involved in the conflict of the 1640s, but was not a judge to have acted against the interests of the Crown. However, he was alleged to have attacked local Protestant churchmen, as well as resisting the Cromwellian attack on Drada in 1649. Despite this, he was found innocent. This caused the Protestants to wonder, was there any use in bringing any evidence before the court? Somewhat pithily, the counsel for the Earl of Mount Alexander uh, was recorded as asking the judges, and I quote, if you judge this man innocent, we must believe the English cut one another's throats and that there was no Irish rebellion or rebels. Such attitudes solidified during the sitting of the court. It's important to note that as the House of Commons attitude hardened during February and March 1663, Ormond's defence Uh, of the commissioners increased. As much as possible, he was unwilling to involve himself in the proceedings of the court so as to avoid any suggestions of impropriety. His intent, uh, in general, for the land settlement was to create a loyal and serviceable middle ground that he could rely upon to defend the interests of the Crown in Ireland. For this reason, he found it necessary to intervene in certain cases while avoiding any involvement in others. One such was that of uh, the former confederate, Oliver Fitzwilliam, Lord Marion and Earl of Tyrconnell, and not to be confused with uh, Dick Talbot, later Duke of Tyrconnell. Fitzwilliam was immediately judged nocent by the Court of Claims, but this was overturned by Ormond upon the express desire of the Queen Mother, Henrietta Maria. Uh, Fitzwilliam had lobbied on behalf of the Confederates in the 1640s in Paris, and the Queen Mother was intent on having this recognised uh, in the 1660s. 
Other such cases was that of the Earl of Antrim, um, which threw the whole court of claims eventually into debacle at the end of August uh, 1663. But as I said, Ormond was trying to create a strong and loyal middle ground upon which the court uh, could rely for support. A similar claim was that of Robert Suttle at Kinsale. And for me, uh, this case neatly encapsulates the tensions and intricacies of the Restoration Ireland. Suttle was born in Suffolk in 1607, the son of an English planter. Very little is known of his upbringing or education, but he appears in 1631 as a collector of customs for the port of Kinsale, the proceeds of which provided him with a modest income of about £100 a year in 1641. Otherwise, his income came from a small brewery that he operated and from lands in and around Kinsale. Toby Bernard has described the Suttles as different to other families, other settler families in Cork, because they were not satellites of the Boyles, but nor were they Anglo-Irish. Instead, he regards, and I agree with him, that, or he says, and I agree with him, that they should be regarded as Irish Protestants. When the rebellion broke out in 1641, Suttle is reputed to have helped defend Kinsale from the Irish, although the extent of his involvement in the wars throughout the decade is murky. However, he emerged as a shining light for the Royalists in 1649 when he provisioned Prince uh, Rupert's fleet. He claimed he suffered for his loyalty to the Royalists, having uh, forfeited one-fifth of his property after the capitulation of the Stuarts, but he was subsequently restored to favour for displaying a willingness to assist the Commonwealth. He enjoyed a number of prominent local positions during the interregnum, acting as a commissioner for transplanted estates and provisioning and victualling the Commonwealth fleet from Kinsale. Eventually, he was promoted to Sovereign of Kinsale in 1657. Now, by the late 1650s, he was very comfortable, uh, enough to lend the Commonwealth, uh, I think, about £3,000 uh, in 1657. And certainly by 1660, he was well-connected with the marriage of his daughter Catherine to Sir John Percival and that of his son uh, to Elizabeth Daring, uh, who was the daughter of a commissioner in the Court of Claims. He enjoyed a close relationship with Ormond, who used him as a counterweight to uh, the Earl of Orrery in Munster, and his prominent act of supplying Prince Rupert's, Rupert's fleet was reciprocated when the prince stood as godfather to one of uh, Suttle's grandsons. To consolidate this uh, position, Suttle had secured mention in the Act of Settlement of 1662 as compensation for supplying the fleet. Confirming in his lands, he was also to receive the forfeited estates uh, of Philip Barry Oak and James Mellifont. One would think that such a clear confirmation of ownership would uh, satisfy the commissioners of the Court of Claims, but this was not so. The case was complicated. It consisted of three contending parties claiming lands surrounding Conseil. The first of these was the Suttle Estate itself. As with other Protestants, their case did not involve proving innocence, but instead trying to achieve confirmation of ownership of the lands. The counterclaims came from a group of soldiers who were known as the 49 men. These were officers who had served in Ireland before 1649 and were trying to uh, achieve uh, satisfaction for arrears of pay. And the third side of the case was from the Gaelic-Irish family, the Barry Oaks. And as it entered the Court of Claims, it was finally balanced as each side believed it had a legitimate claim to ownership of lands. The Barriogues were from the barony of Killinay in County Cork. Philip Barriog, and he's often to refer to as Lord Barriog, was accused of numerous acts of rebellion during the 1640s, but these were all on a local level, and testimonials that were given acknowledged this. The attacks were not bloodthirsty, but they were designed to reduce local Protestant power by robbing cattle and other victuals, imprisoning those who resisted, 
as well as the strategic murder of a number of uh, selected Protestants. Barry Og was among the leaders, the local leaders of about 100 men who carried out these actions, but they were not indiscriminate like those perpetuated in other parts of the country. Confusingly, he was ordered uh, by Sir William St. Ledger, who was the Lord President of Munster in the 1640s, to defend uh, the English interest in Kinelay uh, in 1643, although it's unclear whether or not Barry Oak carried this out. However, this was to be of some importance to him subsequently. In March 1661, a decree of restoration had been issued for his son, William. The decree had claimed that Philip had remained loyal to the crown, more so, and I quote, he preserved many of the English Protestants while he contributed large sums to Charles I's army in Ireland, having lived inoffensive towards the English and with all cheerfulness embraced the peace concluded by the Marquis of Ormond in 1648, end quote. Following the Cromwellian victories, he'd been forced into exile, whereupon he died in Charles II's service in Flanders. His son, William, served in the, the Duke of Ormond's regiment under the command of Viscount Muscree, and he was, a quote, particularly named to be provided for by our declaration uh, for the settlement of Ireland, not only as an innocent papist, but also as a meriting and most deserving subject, end quote. Thus, as of 1661, he was to be immediately restored. He didn't achieve any sort of restoration before the Court of Claims began its proceedings the following year. But for these reasons, the Suttles approached the claim with caution and thoroughness. When the claim was lodged with the Court of Claims in October 1662, an immediate attempt was made to influence the commissioners. Robert Suttle dispatched his son, who's also called Robert, I'll call him Junior for uh, clarity's sake, was sent to Dublin to monitor progress and direct the attorney in charge. His instinct was to write to his brother-in-law, Sir John Percival, whose relationship with the commissioners of the Court of Claims, uh, Sir Thomas Beverley and Henry Coventry, was seen as the best means of success of achieving their aims. Sutter reported that the court was overflowing with claims, as by October 1662, thousands had arrived into the King's Inns in Dublin. His early impression of the commissioners was favourable, judging, judging them to be more sympathetic to the old Protestant settler in the Irish Catholic interests than the new English, whose uh, provisos and the act of settlement were, I quote, things got in by favour more than the just ground that they pretend to stand on, end quote. As the situation developed, it became evident that Barry Oak's whole case was built upon a decree of restoration that he'd received from the king. However, he seems to have very little else going for him. Although the claim had been lodged, the decree from the king had not been immediately included in the evidence, and I don't understand why that was, but it wasn't there when they initially made their claim. Understanding that they were in the, in the ascendancy, but not willing to leave anything to chance, the Suttles pressed ahead with copperfassing their own argument. They were fully aware that they could not rely on patronage, having come to realise or believing that Ormond would probably not intervene on their behalf. The Lord Lieutenant's stance of allowing the court to make decisions was seemingly paramount. The commentary on the wider proceedings gives an interesting insight into political manoeuvrings at the time as what uh, Junior described as the new party, which was the new English settlers and these 49 officers, a quote, do now unite their forces to withstand the interest of the Irish. End quote. Suttle had spent some time with the Commissioner Sir Thomas Beverley, pushing the importance of the case. While Beverley promised nothing except to seemingly reiterate the complexities of the claim, uh, Suttle believed that they were going to receive favour. He followed all other avenues that he could seemingly draw upon. He didn't call in debts owed to his father by the Crown, while letters were written to Sir Henry H. Finch, 
who was the English Solicitor General, pleading assistance in their claim. So it seems that the, at this point in November 1662, the claim was thus lodged, and they were given a date of the 28th of March 1663 to appear before the court of claims. When the case did appear before the court, it was immediately recognised that if Barry Oak could achieve a claim of innocence, there was little doubt that he would succeed in confirming his ownership of the lands. The veteran lawyer, Patrick Darcy, acted as attorney for the, uh, for the Barry Oaks, while Sir Nicholas Plunkett, somewhat surprising, Nicholas Plunkett represented the Suttles. The Attorney General and the Solicitor General, which was Sir William Dumble and Sir John Temple, they were representing the, the soldiers, the 49 men, as they're called, but in reality, they were acting for the Suttles, uh, Junior knowing that they would not, not act against his interests. Plunkett was first to present the case, and he duly delivered a strong account on behalf of the uh, Suttles' right of confirmation. After Plunkett, Patrick Darcy rose to speak, but he was immediately interrupted by Sir Paul Davies, who was the Secretary of State, who declared that Darcy could not address the court because he was not properly attired. So they got him on a technicality. He was in a cloak, not in a gown. This caused an outcry in the audience, as you can imagine, but the Duke of Ormond is recorded as having roaring with laughter at the development. And the case was then moved to a private hearing, but even at this point, it was far from settled. The 49 officers had tried to jeopardise what they correctly saw as a move against them by claiming that the Suttles had falsified the value of their land. And if this had been the case, uh, the Suttles' claim would have been immediately dismissed. Um, ultimately, the clause in the Act of Settlement and the question marks over Barry Oak's involvement in the rebellious activities uh, outweighed any other elements of the case, and the Suttles, uh, as Junior described, had laid Barry Oak and the 49 men on their backs. Now, this came as a real surprise. Sir Randolph Clayton, who was one of the chief representatives of 49 men and an MP, a very prominent politician at the time, he went straight to Sir James Donnellan, who uh, Jennifer mentioned, who by 1663 was Lord Chief Justice of the Common Pleas, and he fumed that some means would need to be found to overturn the decision. However, the order stood. Barry Oak was described as crestfallen at it, um, although it seems that uh, the Suttles promised to let him lease the lands uh, that he claimed at a, a knockdown price, at a low price. The same was the case for the other um, Irish families, particularly the Mellifons, uh, who had also claimed lands in the area. Now, to me, it, when trying to understand the, the restoration settlement, this description is made all the more important by how it is believed the favourable decision came about. Despite all his declared intentions of not intervening in the, in the judicial process, Ormond needed families such as the Suttles. Robert Jr. urged his father to contact those who had been involved in, involved in the favourable outcome. Sir Edward Deering, although not the providing, uh, presiding commissioner, deserves special mention, as uh, Robert Jr. noted, that he had particular reason to believe that Deering did some eminent service for the family. End quote. The ardent royalist, uh, Viscount Conway and Kilolton, had closely followed the Suttle case, and he inferred that, uh, Robert Jr. inferred that uh, Conway uh, had slowly worked away for them, and he described them having sat close to the great many elbows and silly niggled away on their behalf. Sir Paul Davies, the Secretary of State who interrupted the proceedings, had assisted uh, Suttle throughout and deserved a letter of thanks. Although no detail is given, the Duchess of Ormond, uh, Lady Elizabeth, had also quietly involved herself, and this was most likely due to John Percival's close relationship with the Suttles. The most significant contributor to the success, uh, despite his previous claim of being unable to involve himself, was the Duke of Ormond. 
When Suttle approached uh, the Lord Lieutenant in subsequent days, Ormond's attitude to the situation was similar to that which he had adopted for Oliver Fitzwilliam, the Earl of Tyrconnell. He told Robert Jr. that he had been truly concerned in the matter, as uh, as Suttle Sr. had been, and I quote, so good a servant to the crown that he deserved the favour of the court, end quote. Tellingly, the Lord Lieutenant then looked to Robert Jr. and said, I quote, it is done for your advantage too, that so you may be encouraged to follow in your father's footsteps. End quote. Now, although this is just one brief example from the hundreds of claims that were heard in Dublin in 1663, for me, as I say, it neatly sums up the political process, displaying the pitfalls and intricacies of the Restoration Settlement, as Ormond attempted to maintain a hold over the government of Parliament. Although the papers only scratched the surface of the 1660s, such cases brought huge pressure upon the Lord Lieutenant, for it seemed to elements of the Protestant interest that the government was not to be trusted, and their fears of a Catholic rejuvenation grew exponentially throughout uh, the first half of 1663. Soon after, a plot to capture Dublin Castle was uncovered, and this was a direct result of such moves described by the new Protestant interest, who were desperate to maintain uh, what they believed to be rightfully theirs. It's thus understandable why Ormond was intent on bolstering a royalist middle ground with such families as the Suttles, who themselves displayed a, a necessary ability for survival in 17th century Ireland. You can find many more podcasts by visiting the historyhub.ie website.